0: Welcome to Green Team Speaks To, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. I'm Deborah Lair, Executive Director of the Paulson Institute. Today we have a very special guest with us, Jillian Ted. Jillian is the Chair of the Editorial Board and Editor-at-Large of the US Financial Times. She writes weekly columns covering a range of economic, financial, political, and social issues. Last year, she co-founded a new section of the Financial Times called Moral Money. It's focused on the fast expanding world of socially responsible business, sustainable finance, impact investing, ESG trends, and ways to meet the UN's sustainable development goals.
1: So, Jillian, welcome to the Green Team Speaks to podcast. We are so thrilled to have you today to help us interpret what happens with the ESG agenda during this time of a health and economic crisis.
2: Well, I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you. I think it's extremely important.
1: Perfect. You have extensive experience in writing about and analyzing the most important economic and financial issues around the globe. And right now, we're in the middle of what we hope is a a once-in-a-lifetime event, a global pandemic, and that's where I'd like to start our conversation today. The world economies are entering a recession as a result of the spread of the COVID-19 virus. And as governments consider policies to restart their economies, how can they build programs into the relief packages that promote investments in sustainability? Is the political will present to maintain a green agenda when the times are tough?
2: Well, I think we're at a very interesting moment because there are both reasons for great optimism right now about a green agenda and also reasons for potential pessimism. If you start with the pessimistic aspects, um, what we do have is a world heading towards a recession. In some countries, it may be almost closer to a depression. And it will be very natural for both governments and companies and voters to be tempted to focus on growth at all costs when they start to come out of this or even as they try and tackle the issues of recession. And you're already seeing elements of that in terms of say the American government's desire to kickstart the energy sector, rescue oil companies, the fact that when the people are talking about PPE, personal protective equipment to combat um, the coronavirus, no one's really thinking much about plastics. All of those areas are essentially detractors from the green agenda. However, There are also tremendous reasons for optimism, and um, here are four of them. Firstly, this crisis has shown the populations around the world that science cannot be ignored, whatever your politics. Secondly, it's shown everybody that actually we do live in a very connected planet where the weakest link in our chain of humanity can potentially affect us all if it breaks. We've also seen in recent weeks that um, social attitudes can change much faster than people expect and that voters are sometimes willing to make short-term sacrifices if they can clearly see a bigger threat. And last but not least, we have seen some leaders stepping forward and saying actually we need to be essentially green when we come to building back for the future. So I'm an optimist. I think you have to be an optimist in times like this and I think that these reasons to expect the green agenda to essentially keep building will outweigh the inevitable drag. But perhaps the most important point to stress is that nobody who's involved in talking about green issues and trying to draw attention to them can afford to relax or be too distracted right now.
1: Well, that's really an excellent um, overview. I think it's a great place for us to start because I think you're right. We can't be lax. And there are a lot of pressures on the system, particularly with the drop in oil prices, that make it harder to perhaps justify increased pricing for things like renewable energy. And it makes the political will really incredibly important um, as we look ahead. And what can be done really in these times to promote good policy? Our chairman, Hank Paulson, often talks about the fact that even with the financial crisis, a lot of the challenge was that there was just bad policy. And I know as somebody who had great experience in analyzing what happened with the financial crisis in 2008, are there lessons that we can learn from that that could be applicable in this time to make sure that we have good policy going forward?
2: Well, that's going to be extremely difficult to execute, Um, but here are sort of three pointers. Firstly, I think it's very important to communicate as clearly as possible the wider message about where policy could and should go. And in many ways, you know, the green movement or anyone who's trying to promote green issues should stand up very clearly to voters now and say, You've seen what happens with pandemics if you ignore the science and ignore our wider global connectivity and responsibilities. Exactly the same thing will happen with climate change if we don't act. So messages matter. You obviously need to try and, in a sense, depoliticize it and try and get both sides of the aisle to work together, which is extremely hard. But there are, again, reasons for cheer. I mean, think about, for example, the idea of a carbon dividend, which is a version of a carbon tax which, that has been floating around in Washington. Um, you know, that's one area where you could actually potentially see some bipartisan policy making develop. And in some ways, having ultra low oil prices is a good place to start because if you were to put some kind of carbon dividend onto, um, say, fossil fuels components right now, you know, the consumers may accept it and um, it would almost go disguised. And then, last but not least, I think it's going to be very important to try and ensure that you bring not just both sides of the political aisle on board, but also people outside the political sphere, so NGOs, the private sector, because the private sector in particular has become very active in pushing forward these policy issues in the last couple of years. Many of them are aware that they can't completely drop the ball on green issues right now and seem keen to help if they're essentially given a direction to go in. That's really a very important point, I think. What is the role of
1: the private sector? And we have seen green investing, green finance really being moved out of the philanthropic area for some of the major financial institutions and more into the mainstream of their business. Do you see that that's a continuing trend and do you see that maybe with this crisis and we think about where are the opportunities to grow, to invest, um, to issue more bonds, that the green area, that green finance could be one of those areas? And in this sense, then the private sector could play a leading role in this and perhaps even be ahead of where, at least in the United States, at least ahead of where policy is.
2: Well, we don't see any sign that green finance is going away. Um, Like almost all areas of financial activity right now, its activity has slowed down considerably. You're not seeing a lot of issuance of new green bonds right now. However, having put those teams handling green issues into the core of financial institutions operations, I don't think they're going to kick them out again in a hurry. Because the reality is that, you know, if the oil industry is about to go through an incredibly brutal shakeout, which looks likely, for the most part, people aren't going to be rebuilding, recreating energy companies based on fossil fuels, given the bigger structural direction that we're not currently going in. So I suspect that that momentum will be quite hard to reverse suddenly. And in addition to that, you know, we're seeing increasingly campaigns developing from the investor side the asset owners um, to try and demand more change and that's dovetailing with a generational shift it's very striking that university divestment campaigns are actually accelerating right now not dying away and it's also very striking that in countries like the UK you have celebrities launching campaigns to try and get people to put their retail investments and savings and pensions into more sustainable products so I think that will stay in track for a while. Well, and I think
1: that goes back to your point, then, that messages matter. When you have those kinds of endorsements coming from leading corporations and uh, popular stars and celebrities, it does make a difference. So I think it's important, um, you know, to emphasize the role that individuals can play in all of this as well as um, the corporations. Now, moving on to a different point, technology. And we see this as really a growing factor in green finance and obviously across many different sectors. And and in the case of fintech, for example, China has been a leader in the use of fintech, both to bring people into the financial system, but also as a catalyst for changing behaviors. Games like Ant Forest, which was launched by Ant Financial, that has over 500 million players who track their carbon footprint every day in hopes of winning a point from their energy savings to build a virtual tree, which then transforms into an actual tree, have um, tree planting. And, and they've now planted, amazingly, over 15 million trees in Inner Mongolia. they in organizations like that are trying to gamify the promotion of more sustainable behavior. What role do you see technology playing? And what are the technologies that are likely to be disruptors in this space?
2: Well, the most immediate role that technology is playing is the communication aspect um, in terms of both showing people around the planet the tremendous implication of climate change with a clarity that, frankly, early generations could not possibly have dreamt of. And you cannot underestimate the impact of that transparency and awareness. Um, At the same time, you know, technology platforms are enabling people to actually mobilize much faster than before. I mean, somebody like Greta Thunberg has had an incredible impact in terms of mobilizing public opinion Mm -hmm. because of technology. But aside from that, the fact that we are seeing um, by default a dramatic move out of offices into working from home, a collapse in travel, a collapse in aviation activity, a collapse in people traveling around on cars and have seen the impact that it has on the environment for the better, I suspect again is going to be changing the dynamic going forward because the number of people I speak to who have been suddenly forced to work from home and mm. are saying, I used to have a jet set lifestyle flew around the world once a week and I'm suddenly realizing I don't need to. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see that really developing. And there's a very interesting theory that's been around for a while that one of the reasons why productivity in the economy was so slow in recent years, even though we had these incredible innovations from Silicon Valley, was because the dispersion of uptake, i.e. the number of people who actually bothered to find out how to use the new technologies, was incredibly uneven. This crisis has forced rapid technological learning and uptake Right across the economy. Is it evenly spread? No. Is it very unequal potentially in terms of access to the internet and learnings on the internet? Yes. But still, a lot more people are using digital technology now in a way that means that maybe, just maybe, we could be almost cutting emissions in the future by default. Mm-hmm. And certainly, we've seen a drop in emissions with
1: the slowdown in the economy across the world. The numbers out of China are really quite staggering.
2: Well, there's been a dramatic, dramatic. Mm. There's been dramatic impact. I mean, the fact that you can now see the clear waters in the canals of Venice, the fact you can see mm-hmm. the sky in parts of China, um, even in a place like Manhattan where I live, the fact you can suddenly hear the birds singing for the first time for ages or even just you know see the sky with much more clarity than before it's very striking and again i think as consumers see that and realize just how much pollution they've been li- living with without even noticing you again may see snowballing action and pressure for change well that and that shows that actually individuals can make a difference and so as a person
1: who has been one of the early leaders in the field of Green living what what do you do to live a green lifestyle, and do you have tips and suggestions for other individuals who perhaps don 't want to go back to the old ways as you were saying and looking for ways that they can live a more sustainable life?
2: Well, I would never hold myself up as a paragon of green virtue um, or even one of the first movers, um, and in some ways, one of the reasons why I got involved in this area is precisely because i have come from a very mainstream financial um, journalism background and have not spent my life as an activist. You know, I am in some ways, Mr. Ordinary middle of the road in terms of these issues of concerned. where I felt for a long time that I wanted to be more environmentally friendly, but wasn't quite sure how. So I'm on a journey right now and I'm doing things that many people um, would recognize, like trying to travel a bit less, being more conscious of my footprint in terms of recycling, um, Mm -hmm. trying to think about what kind of energy I'm consuming. um, And actually, above all else, trying to think about what I'm investing in personally. Um, I'm moving my investments into um, ESG um, assets. So I'm on a learning journey that probably mirrors the way that many people in the FT are also traveling right now.
1: Right. Well, and that leads us into our last question. I think the Financial Times really was one of the first major media platforms to have a dedicated focus on ESG. So can you tell me just about your rationale behind launching Moral Money?
2: Well, I have spent my career as a financial journalist um, covering revolutions and zeitgeist shifts. I started my career during the breakup of the Soviet Union. I was in Japan when the Japanese banks collapsed. I was covering the credit markets in the 2008 crisis. And so I'm very interested in big societal and financial system breakpoints and moments of transformation. And I noticed a couple of years ago that I was getting a lot of press notices from financial institutions and businesses talking about ESG. And my first reaction, like many journalists, was to simply ignore that, because I think most journalists tend to view this whole world as being rather irritatingly hippie and do gooding, or as Mm. one of of them said to me, you know, ESG should stand for eye roll, sneer and groan. And (laughs) I was very much in that sort of, you know, camp of (laughs) oh, not another ESG press release. Um, But then I started asking, you know, why are companies doing this? And I realized that there was a big zeitgeist shift going on. As companies began to realize they needed to have a more clearly defined sense of purpose other than just sharing, serving shareholders and the financial market practitioners realized that they needed to do more than just make profits or more accurately think about how they made profits and the consequences of what they were doing. And policymakers have been trying to essentially harness private sector capital to pursue their developmental goals because, you know, taxpayer money and philanthropy just isn't enough.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. So I saw these developments, got very interested, realized there was a yawning gap in the market um, about who was covering this and taking it seriously. And also realized something else very interesting, which was that we at the FT already had some coverage on these themes, but it was incredibly fragmented, um, reflecting in many ways the structure of the marketplace as a whole. Um, I actually did an audit early on to try and see how much content we had looking at our metadata tagging system and realized that we were using 1717 different tags for content linked to ESG. So it was scattered all over the place, but you couldn't really see it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, let's create a platform where we can bring this together, provide an easy to understand digestible um, snapshot of what's happening, not for the committed diehard activists, But for people who were like me and saying, you know what, I haven't been in this world before you know, but actually I think it's pretty important. I'd like to learn more. So that's what we try and serve up with brevity and clarity and a dose of wit. And the important thing to stress is that the big change in the last two years is that although there have always been people who were involved in this field because they wanted to actively change the world, and they're what I call the impact investors. There's now a growing number of people who want to make sure sure that they just simply do no harm to the world. That's in some ways, it's a sustainability crew. And there's an even bigger tranche of people who want to make sure they do no harm to themselves because they're worrying that if they ignore these issues, they may have reputational risks, supply chain risks, they may lose employees, they may face lawsuits, they may suddenly wake up and realize that actually... They've got huge stranded assets or assets that have lost their value because of climate change sitting inside their portfolios. So for many people, ESG is becoming a tool of risk management. And Mm -hmm. you can say, well, that's just hypocritical. But you can also say revolutions happen, not when a tiny minority of hardcore activists are campaigning, but when the majority decide that it's actually a bad idea to get in the way of that revolution and they should just go along with it passively if nothing else. And I think we're at that moment right now. Well, I think that is a perfect ending to what
1: has been just a brilliant and insightful interview. And we're very appreciative that you take the time to really help us understand One, how ESG can play a role at a time of crisis like we're facing now, and be part of the solution as countries are looking to restart their economies, and why it's so important that both as governments in advocating for good policy, as corporations, and as individuals, we can play a role. So Jillian, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us.
2: Well, and best of luck in steering a course in these very troubled times.
0: Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks 2. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at paulsoninstitute.org. Many thanks.